Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Indeed, today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing and we are giving thanks in it. Let's pause right there on that word. We're giving thanks in it. So it is Thanksgiving Eve. It is the day before the great feasting, the great gatherings, uh, the opportunities for us to sit down at table fellowship with people who may very much disagree with us about many, many things, but with whom we can acknowledge before God that we are blessed. And I want you to pause for just a moment and consider just how profound a theological act it is. Theology isn't just something that, you know, like we do in our heads, right? It's not just some cerebral activity where, oh, I believe these things. No, no. Theology is a lived reality. It's living in the reality of uh, of a universe that is created personally by God, um, on purpose, for a purpose, and that God is personal. And so Thanksgiving is an intensely theological act. Why in the world would we be giving thanks if there weren't one to whom thanks was due? Uh, if, there, if there weren't one from whom blessings flowed, why would we be counting them? Uh, we are not self-made, we are not self-rising, and we are not self-redeemed. We are a people created in the image of a living God who uh, provides for us in ways that are genuinely extraordinary from the abundant, uh, from the abundance of his mercy and grace. And our, our blessings are too many to count. And so we've, I mean, we've been talking for several days about how we're counting our blessings and how uh, the blessings that we're counting are not only those that are material, but that we are counting the spiritual blessings stored up for us in heaven, um, all, all that awaits us uh, even beyond this life, but all that is available to us by the grace of God even right now. The fact that you and I could bow our heads and pray a prayer of thanksgiving is in itself a reason to give thanks. The fact that we know God and have access to him, one for us by Jesus Christ, uh, that, that separation, that barrier, the reality of sin uh, is overcome. It's, it is paid for. Uh, it is set aside. It is removed as far as the east is from the west, not only in the consequence uh, of sin, which is death, but in the power of sin in this life. You can give thanks today uh, for the victory in Jesus, even if you're walking in suffering, even if you are walking um, through a portion of life that is very, very hard. And so I'm reminded today um, from First Chronicles 16.34 that we give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And his loving kindness is everlasting. So on this Thanksgiving Eve, let us remember that giving thanks in and of itself is a theological act. All right, when we come back from the break, uh, Peter Kapsner is going to be here. And he and I are going to talk about just how ancient atheism really is. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Peter Kapsner is joining us again this morning. Uh, he and I love to just converse about what's going on in the world, bring the Christian worldview to bear, um, talk not only about high, 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 how and why, that would be high merged together, uh, how and why things are the way they are, and how and why they are all different because of Jesus Christ. So, Peter, welcome back. Great to be with you, Carmen, and I appreciate being on just before Thanksgiving here. We're, as you know, overseas in the United Kingdom right now. And let's just say they don't have reason to celebrate Thanksgiving uh, here in the United Kingdom (laughs) like we do. So this is sort of my Thanksgiving moment, you know, a little bit around the table with you and Paul this morning. How will will your family be celebrating Thanksgiving with us even, uh, even across the pond? Yeah, well, you know, there is, uh, it is a uniquely American holiday, obviously, and they have uniquely American holidays, uh, or British holidays over here that we wouldn't celebrate in America, just tied to cultural heritage and history. But I think the bigger picture and what I love, uh, you know, your focus in Thanksgiving is that uh, even though it's an American holiday, the principle or idea of Thanksgiving, especially as you referenced at the top of the hour here, is sort of the heart of God's kingdom, isn't it? That there's an ability to give thanks in all things, in the midst of uh, pain and sorrow, in the midst of joy and triumph, that uh, to have a heart of gratefulness, I would suggest, not just on a day of thanksgiving, but uh, but as part of just sort of the, the weekly reality of your life, I think is a hallmark, of, and can be a hallmark of the Christian faith, because we live in a, uh, in a future of certainty, we can live in a present of gratefulness uh, at any given moment. So you and I have read um, an article entitled The Ancient Faith of Atheism. And one of the things that I find myself wondering today is, to whom exactly are atheists giving thanks on Thanksgiving? I mean, even even the very idea that the United States of America would set aside a day um, during which we would collectively give thanks to God for his providence and his goodness. Um, I don't even know how they can read the Thanksgiving Day proclamation. I don't know why atheists take the day off. Who To whom are they giving thanks? Yeah, I mean, that is such an important question, Carmen. And, and interestingly enough, there's a church that we attend over here with some friends of ours, um, with sort of our long-term association with Scotland. And the pastor recently was giving a sermon right along these lines about the existence of God or lack thereof and what that means for our lives. And he ma- he was making the point that even if you try to live a life of virtue and even if you try to live a life of contribution to this world, that in 2000 years, if you're an atheist, when the universe cools and maybe everything sort of comes to an end, it doesn't actually at the end of the day matter what kind of life you've lived. And in that, because there's there's no being with whom you're interacting for eternity, there's no reason to give thanks for anything on this earth, whether it's the positive contributions that people make or whether somebody just wants to be sort of, I guess, somewhat evil by whatever standards of morality we might use. There isn't, at the end of the day, any differentiation in that choice because there's not a being. But within the Christian faith, obviously, in a theistic worldview— we're able to then give thanks uh, because there is reason for why we do what we do on this earth. At at the heart of the difference between atheism and Christianity is the difference of meaning versus meaninglessness, no matter how you try to couch it, if you're in the atheistic perspective. It's just meaningless, and there there isn't any real reason to give thanks for anything that would be long-term. Yeah, you're really pointing out there that the fundamental difference is whether or not the universe is personal or impersonal. I mean, right. if there's a if if it's personal, um, you know, 
the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, uh, fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, present with me right now, closer to me than my next breath, and and equally as close to you, um, if that's not reality, then all of that is a void. And so atheists really believe in the void of a personal God, and therefore... um, when we when we talk with people who deny the reality of God, first of all, we're we're looking at something that's as old as time itself. Um, it was interesting to me in reading this this article, the ancient faith of atheism. Um, you know, never never do we get all the way back to let's say uh, Psalm fourteen one. The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." I mean, atheism has been around a long time. Yeah, it has. I think it, it points out sort of the what people might might call or theologians might call sort of the existential angst in which we all live, meaning do we have meaning? How can we be certain of meaning? How can we be certain of a God? And when we try to answer those questions from an intellectual or, or a question kind of basis and saying, if I can just understand better, then maybe I can finally believe in God. And and that existential angst has been present not just in the last 100 years or 50 years or the supposed death of God by the philosophers in the 20th century. This has been present, as you've pointed out from the passage in Psalms, from the beginning of time. People, especially because the future is always uncertain, especially because we don't know for sure what's going to happen in our lives. And because the world is not in the redeemed state that it ultimately will be in, there will be trouble and turmoil. And because of that, we ask them, I think, some really important, legitimate questions about God. But it's when we go from our questions about God to embracing the idea that there is no God, that we move from some sort of wisdom in the midst of our struggles to just utter foolishness, because then, in the words of Solomon, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Nothing matters anymore at that point, and life just becomes sort of this foolish pursuit of meaninglessness. And, and, and that is as old as time. It isn't, certainly it does characterize our day today, but it was fascinating, the article you referenced, how this, is, this has been part of the human condition since the beginning. Okay, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I actually want to stick with this subject for a couple of more minutes, um, because as atheism has become much more culturally acceptable in the culture, you know, the likelihood of people sitting down at table fellowship tomorrow or sometime over this weekend with a family member who does not believe in God, um, that's real. And so I'd like to, uh, for you and I to have a conversation where we equip the listener um, for the potentiality of sitting down at table fellowship tomorrow or in the days to come with a person who genuinely um, is atheistic, does not believe in God. So that conversation up next with Peter Kapsner following the break. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation this morning with Peter Kapsner. So, Peter, um, atheism has become far more culturally accepted uh, or acceptable. I think that people are far more willing to just come right out and say, uh, publicly admit that they do not believe. Uh, And so my tactic has been, when that happens, to um, pause and remind myself, first of all, do not get defensive. This is not about me. I don't need to be defensive. This is not about me. This is about God. God's big enough to defend himself. Um, But I am in a really privileged space, really privileged um, position to 
ask questions and open up a conversation about the God in whom they don't believe. And so that has been my question to atheists along the way. Um, I, I pause and I say, hmm, wow, that is, that is fascinating. Tell me about the God in whom you don't believe. Boy, and does it matter, Carmen, for you where you are? I, I, do you have a relationship with some of these people sort of prior to this? Because I think about the different Thanksgiving Day tables where you might not be able to ask that kind of question for fear that the whole thing would melt down. But in some places you probably can, right? In terms of there's just there's a safe space to be able to talk about these things back and forth. Do you, do you get some sort of response in that situation from people uh, that, that seems like it's helpful in the relationship? Yeah, so uh, – if the Thanksgiving Day table is big enough and you're sitting right next to the person, you can have the conversation because it's sort of in the quiet of your own, you know, that own your own little space yeah. that exists where two people can talk at a very large table. If you're at one of those Thanksgiving Day tables where everybody is talking to everybody else, which is not the way I think Thanksgiving meals should be approached because it just becomes a platform for the loudest, worst person in the room. Um <laughs> which in the past has been me on occasion. So um, so I do think that the opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation is definitely the approach that I'm talking about here. Yeah. But to give a person an opportunity to basically share all the things that that are total misrepresentations of the reality of who God is, and then just to be able to say to them, you know what, if God were like that, I wouldn't believe in him either. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, isn't it? And I was just out to dinner with somebody here the other night, and uh, and he gave me a quote from Timothy Keller that I found terribly helpful, where Timothy Keller recently wrote an article with the admonition that we must uh, relate to and understand God as he actually is, rather than God as we imagine him to be. And I, I just thought that how many of us have ideas about God, and I think especially in some understandable ways the atheists have ideas about God, that simply don't represent the God of heaven. And, I, and what you're talking about, and if you have the kind of relationship that can withstand that sort of question, and I think a lot of listeners do, that, that they're maybe not willing to ask it initially, but I think a lot of people are willing to talk about these things more so than we might know. You know, tell me about the God in whom you don't believe. It really can reveal what people's imaginative perceptions are about God that don't actually relate to the, to the real God. But that's then it's incumbent upon me and you and listeners and other people to stay tethered to God's word, to to be in relationship with uh, church and friends and people and and be wondering about uh, what is our picture of God? And if we have a chance to present him as accurately as possible, uh, what might that look like? So the follow up, um, in my view, is that I listen long enough and I ask enough questions to get to the point of the person's pain. Yeah. Um, in, in my, in my, in my experience, yeah, I mean, in my experience, there's a reason. There's an experience they have had in their life, um, normally with a Christian or with a Christian institution, that has brought them to a place of rejecting this misconception, this misrepresentation of who God really is. So they're not rejecting the reality of God. They're rejecting... Um, the God whom apparently, you know, is worshiped by this group of people or this institution that has hurt them. Yeah. Pain is pain is such an important part of this. And so, again, getting back to sort of how um, how I am going to be present non-defensively in that conversation. I don't need to defend an institution. I don't need to defend a group of people that I've never met and I wasn't present, but I'm present now. And so, you know, hearing a person out 
hearing their pain and then being able to tell a story from scripture, not identifying it as that, but just saying, you know, there was a point in time when God dealt with a woman in a very similar circumstance. You know, her name was, you know, pick one, right? I mean, go down the list. Right. Um, right. And, and this is, then this is what happened. And this is how God redeemed that situation. And I guess I'm holding out hope that you would have the opportunity to meet the God of, and then use her name, whatever, you know, whatever woman it is in scripture, whose story you're going to tell to this woman who's experienced this pain, um, you know, here in this life, that's the redemptive narrative people seem to be missing. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and I think even some of the article that we were working through talks about the how Christianity almost always is rising out of pain, failure and turmoil in life that when things just no longer make sense. And so and I think related to what you said, Carmen, there is that I think there can be some legitimate anger and, and not necessarily have a whole lot of time for some of the philosophers of the day, the Dawkinses and the Hitchens, and some of these really well-known atheists that are perpetrating their worldview through different YouTube mechanisms and in universities, I think to be uh, pretty combative in that situation uh, for people that might uh, be like myself in upper education and, and to be combating those worldviews with not a lot of grace, I think can be helpful because they are perpetrating really some awful worldviews that put people in, in serious bondage. But I contrast that to what you just described at the Thanksgiving Day table. Most people that are walking in some form of agnosticism or outright atheism tend to have come to that position, not because they're educated at some elite Ivy League institution, but they do because out of understandable pain and turmoil in their lives. And because of that, to approach it with sympathy and compassion and love and understanding that you and I, I'm guessing, still have a whole lot of questions about God as well, to be much more in solidarity with somebody who has maybe made the understandable, the delusional move to, to suggest that God is not present. I think is is really helpful. I, I think to extend forbearance and compassion in these conversations, we'll be able to open up space because, as you said, usually atheism is coming from a place of painful experience, not from sort of this anti, uh, this human secularism, intellectualism kind of place that I think, again, needs to be combated pretty ferociously insofar as possible. But the average person is not, and, and myself included, my questions about God, Carmen, tend to come from places of pain and turmoil and not because of some interesting intellectual argument. Right. I mean, why? Why tends to be the, uh, the deep, most oft asked question. Why? Right. Why right. this or why not that? Why um, why do I have this or why do I not have that? And and, and it's not necessarily – sometimes that's covetous, covetousness. I recognize that. Sometimes it's the reality of I really need what I don't have and I don't understand that or I perceive myself to need it. And so um, some of this is getting to the place where we recognize that God always has our best interests in mind even when we can't see that. And I think that is really – that's a hard part of faith. And when the, you know, when, when the article is talking about doubt or it's talking about skepticism, I think that ultimately our doubts and our skepticism tend to rise when the people of God don't behave in ways that are consistent with who God is. And then we find ourselves um, really, really searching about for a meaning and a purpose or a way to connect with God that's disconnected from the way he has chosen to reveal himself. And so 
I just want to encourage people today to not be afraid of the conversations tomorrow with people who do not believe what you believe, and you don't have to be defensive about that. God does not need to be defended at your Thanksgiving Day table. He needs to be honored, and so you can give you can give gratitude to God and have a thankful heart even in the midst of people who uh, you know, who deny him and know him not. And so I just want to be an encouragement there that if each, each one of us could be the most positive personal representation, representation, what you're doing tomorrow at the Thanksgiving day table, no matter who you are, no matter where you're going to be, you are representing Christ to other people. You are a representative representing Christ to other people and may Christ be made known in the breaking of that bread. Peter Kapsner is going to stick around uh, for the next half hour because we've only gotten through one topic. Does that sound good? (laughs) That sounds great, Carmen. (laughs) Okay. We're going to talk about the church in rural America. Most people listening right now uh, live in parts of the country that we would describe as rural. And so we want to talk about uh, the, the, the health of the church in rural America and the great gospel opportunity that exists there. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So there are lots of people who think they know a lot about what we would call flyover country or rural America. And for those of us who live in flyover country, we live in rural America, we know that lots of the things that are said about us are simply not true. And lots of the assumptions that are made about rural life are not true. Um, And so there is an ongoing series by Ed Stetzer um, at edstetzer.com, this ongoing series about reaching and revitalizing rural America Um, overcoming misconceptions and answering the call. Um, And I want to just begin unpacking what Ed is saying, the observations he's making about rural America, see if those resonate with you, um, and then really address uh, together these misconceptions that people have of rural America. Um, And so we're going to talk with, we're going to continue our conversation with Peter Kapsner, who, like me, um, lives in a rural part of the country. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Have you ever thought about your unanswered prayers? When I stop and think about it, I'm grateful that God gave me what I needed rather than what I asked for. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. With Thanksgiving coming up, you may want to add unanswered prayers to your list of things you're thankful for. You know, it's a fact of life. We don't always get what we want or pray for. But God has a plan for you, which may not include everything on your list. Sometimes you ask for something that isn't right for you, or maybe the timing isn't right. You may pray for external things like a new house, a new job, or a bigger paycheck. Instead, consider praying for an understanding of God's will for you and how he wants you to use his gifts to live your faith. So this Thanksgiving, thank God for all the prayers he's answered and the ones he hasn't. He always has your best in mind. And happy Thanksgiving. I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent. Continuing my conversation now with Dr. Peter Kapsner. Um, Peter, when we talk about rural America, um, I claimed that both you and I live in places that are largely described as rural, and yet we both live right on the edge of a major metropolitan area. Um, We both have access to all of 
um, you know, all of the resources that big cities have to offer. But we also uh, have a real heart affection for um, for the land and the people who work the land and till the soil. Um, just talk talk with us for a moment about just the heart affection that you have for rural America. Yeah, I, you know, my parents grew up uh, in central Minnesota in farming communities, these these small villages that were terribly tight knit communities. And, you know, sometimes that wasn't always positive just because of the gossip train and, and or the gossip vine. You, you can move pretty quickly and and you can feel a little bit oppressed or suffocated by some of the powers that be in some of these communities. But that that was sort of the minority idea. The majority is that there is a real rhythm of the day, a real rhythm of people doing life together, uh, ways of life together. Uh, communities, Carmen, are held together by their common story, by their common rituals, by their common ideas about life. And that doesn't mean that we are all brainwashed to thinking the same thing. It just means that our sense of identity and our sense of purpose and our, and our sense of belonging has to involve some kind of community along the lines of what I just described. And so in, in, a, in a time of increasing urbanization, but I think more importantly, in a time of truly hyper individualism that has really set, been set loose upon the Western world uh, through both mobility of automobiles and airplanes and, and the proliferation of them, but also now with technology and the internet, we're able to individualize ourselves in ways that past generations couldn't. And that really leads to the loss of community and relationships and shared values and shared purposes and all of those sorts of things. So, yeah, I live on the edge, as you do, of a major urban center of Minneapolis-St. Paul. And if I drive 25 minutes, I will be in downtown Minneapolis. If I drive to the east and if I drive 25 minutes to the west, I am in sort of this deeply rural area. And I have to tell you, driving 25 minutes to the West does my heart so much more good than driving 25 miles to the East. It's it's funny, there's just sort of a little golf course out 25 miles from, from where I am. And I feel more a part of what happens at that golf course, even though I only see these men and women maybe once every other week than I do in driving into sort of the anonymous population base of Minneapolis. And And I love our city. But I just you lose sense of belonging to anything when when it's all just so large and overpopulated that way. And so the other piece that I would say is is a lot of my business that I do over the last 15, 16 years has been developing products for more rural landscape kinds of places. And I will tell you, some of the friendliest and nicest and most considerate and gentle kind of people that I've met continue to live in these rural areas. And so with the hardships that have been part of rural life the last couple of generations, it still is a place that feels far more peaceful to me and, and thus my great affinity for it. So I want to talk about, um, I concur with all of that. I, I continue to think of myself as just a farm girl from Indiana, even though I recognize I haven't lived there since I was like six years old, but it's still you know, it's where my people are and it's where my people are from. And it's um, all of the stories that I have from both my mom and my dad are farm stories. Every single, you yeah. know, every single story <laughs> is a farm story. Um, and so, and some of them are really difficult. Like farming is hard. Um, and so, uh, but I think that some of the things that you lift up there, first of all, it's not monolithic. Like it is, it is individual and it is unique and yet it is communal. There is a knit togetherness of rural America that's different than the kinds of uh, ways we can live very independent of one another in, uh, in more urban settings. And, and so people know what's going on 
in the lives of other people and they are concerned and they are you know ready to lend a hand and they are um they're not trying to escape from the problems of their neighbor they're just not i mean they're they're engaged right. they're concerned and so um <clears throat> when uh if we just want to turn our attention to this series that Ed Stetzer is working on, I think it is really, I think that it's helpful to, um, to recognize this very first misconception that he points out, which is that it's not, uh, it's not homogeneous culturally. Like everybody that lives in rural America is not the same. It's not like a cookie right. cutter kind of reality. We are talking about individuals. Talk about this misconception. Yeah, well, I think there is this idea that anybody who would live in the in the rural community. Um, would be at least for sure over 50 years old, uh, be primarily a Caucasian and entirely uneducated. And and those percentages just don't really hold up. I think some of our political conversations in our country is the last four years have really created kind of this misunderstanding gap about who is in urban, urban centers and who is in rural centers. And, and there tends to be the sense in which uh, some political figures might portray the people of rural communities to really the, the reason why they wouldn't believe a particular political philosophy is because they simply are just uneducated. And uh, it, it calls to mind even when President Obama, uh, who I think had a lot of really amazing things to say, also had some really terrible things to say, including that comment that people in rural America are just clinging to their religion and their guns. And I just thought I, I couldn't believe what the misstep was <laughs> associated with that because it presents this mischaracterization. But uh, increasingly so, People are being educated about how to use the land and uh, technologies associated with it that hold to the, the sanctity of the land without just stripping it bare. And uh, there's some really amazingly lovely people across all generations that are in these rural communities. It isn't maybe the misconception that has been played out to be. So we uh, we just got uh, our meat back from having two of our cows processed. And let me just tell you, <clears throat> that's a lot of meat. And the people <laughs> and the people who know how to do that, like they're geniuses. Yeah. I, 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 gotta, I mean, I, I mean, not only do I not want to do that, I would not even know where to begin. And I guarantee you it would not be this, you know, very, uh, you know, very it, well, it's, you know, it's, it's beautiful what you end up with um, anyway and tasty. So <clears throat> um, maybe we'll do the two other misconceptions after we got to take a break. Um, we'll do the, the second conception is this idyllic life that everybody who lives right. in rural America, right, that it's just idyllic. It's just it's perfect. And we all sit under willow trees and every day and have picnics. And um, <clears throat> that's not real either. Like it's it's hard. It's a hard life. So we're going to talk about that misconception when we come back. Um, and then the third misconception, just to give people a little heads up, is that the that rural America is already gospel saturated, that there's no opportunity right. out there in rural America for the gospel to be um, spread anew. And we're going to talk about how that's not true as well. It's really, um, it, it, in many places, it's fallow ground and a real opportunity to oversee with the gospel right now in our day. So that conversation up next, uh, I'm going to continue talking with Peter Kapsner because he's so gracious to give us a whole hour today. Uh, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So we talk about rural America and we talk about um, those communities where most of the food in America is produced and goodness is just knit into the fabric of, of community life. There's a reason that, um, that people think it's largely white and largely uneducated and largely older. 
Um, and that's because there is a little, there is a grain of truth in that. Right. And so we want to talk right. about the, um, the difference in, in the, in the reality of what is happening in rural communities and this perception that it's just idyllic. So Peter, uh, Peter Kapster and I are continuing our conversation about this series that Ed Stetzer is working on, um, not only about life in rural America, but really what it might look like for there to be a revitalization and even a genuine gospel renewal. So talk with us about this second misconception, which is that living in the country is idyllic. Well, and I think this is the heart of his article that I found terribly compelling was the idea that, as you described, many people of the next generation, they have left the rural communities. And what Ed writes here that, again, I found sort of haunting in the article is that places become what they are because of the people in them and families pass down traditions from one generation to the next. And from that place, a town's very character forms. And then Ed asks the question, but what happens when the people are gone? Well, their memories and their shared experiences go with them. And for many, the town's soul quietly disappears. And so people in rural communities, he finishes by saying, aren't just selfishly pining away for some good old days of the past. They're actually grappling for their center of gravity in the midst of the loss of what had been pretty longstanding generational values and ways of life and ways of being. So there's a deep disorientation that is going on in rural America that, though it manifests itself a little bit differently than urban centers, it, it think at the heart has the same disorientation associated with urban centers. And that is like, what is the story? Why am I alive? To whom do I belong? Where are my people? All of these kind of questions are right at the center of rural America as well. I also think, Peter, that when um, when an individual and therefore a family is in crisis in in rural America, um, it it puts them at a peril that is is real for the whole community because their family farm and or their family business is also a part of the fabric of that community. And so the the despair or the addiction or the crisis of mental health in the life of an individual in a farm family um, or in a farming community um, can become not only devastating to that individual and that family, but devastating to the community as well. I mean, I just think the resources that rural communities have to bring to bear are different because of not only who lives there, but because it's not a place where resources tend to rush in. Right. Well, and, and I think, uh, it, because again, where do you have an opportunity to, to build wealth in the rural communities, especially as prices for some of the products you might sell from your farm, whether it's livestock or something uh, from the fields, have really been so depressed by globalization? How do you generate the kind of wealth and opportunity that comes from uh, free markets and entrepreneurialism that can really raise an entire community and thus help the community care for one another when you simply don't have the similar levels of income generating opportunities? So I have seen, uh, Carmen, I know people from my my parents' generation, and uh, and I hear word from them from time to time, how they're sort of forced to sell off the family farms or or can't make it any longer. And certainly, when I was growing up, when I described where I was, 25 minutes from downtown Minneapolis, it was terribly rural at that point in the 1970s and 80s. I was surrounded by family farms, and now I'm surrounded by strip malls. Uh, simply because the family farms over time have a really difficult time making it. And, uh, and, and again, if you don't have an ability to, to generate wealth, you're not going to have the ability to care for one another from a financial standpoint very effectively. So I want to get to the third misconception, which is gospel saturation. But, but I, don't, I don't want to wander off from this point too quickly. I want to give people an idea for tomorrow. 
um, the oldest person at the table, whoever it is, is your best opportunity for your family to reconnect and rediscover, um, celebrate anew, pass to a new generation, the truths of your family's past. And so um, take time tomorrow. We're going to take time to let my mom, who's now 81, tell some farm stories to the, you know, the grandchild generation. I know the stories because I've heard her tell the stories, but I'm not sure they've heard her tell the stories. And I know that they haven't heard my dad's stories because he was gone before any of them were born. And so um, let's allow tomorrow to be uh, one opportunity to sort of recapture those conversations, those stories um, that passed in order that we might reconnect with our rural um, roots, even if we are now urban dwellers. So I just want to encourage people in that. And then let's talk about this third misconception, which is gospel saturation. The third misconception is that rural America doesn't need another church. Why, um, mm. why is that wrong? Yeah, boy, it's, it is interesting. Again, I just one more time reflect back on my youth when we would travel those couple of hours up into central Minnesota and you hit a, a small town. And usually the pervading or pervasive architectural feature of a small town, at least in that part of the country, is going to be a gigantic church with a steeple that sort of soars over the horizon of the other buildings in that village. It really is the town centerpiece. And 30, 40 years ago, those churches were still pretty vibrant and active. They were the center of the community. They often stood actually geographically in the center of the community. So from the north, south, east, and west suburbs around the, the church in these small towns, you could come right to the heart of that church. And there was obviously the potlucks and the Sunday night services and all of what I'm sure many of our listeners grew up with as well, which was a sense that the church was not just the place of of following Jesus and figuring out our faith and, and uh, participating in our religious practices, but it also was sort of the, the social gathering of the town. It, it, it served a wide variety of purposes. Well, Carmen, if you go into those same towns today, that same building is there, and it still has sort of the striking architectural features of the town. But similar to what I often experience over here in Europe, you have these gigantic cathedrals, and, and they are just majestic and beautiful. And yet if you walk in on a Sunday morning, it's relatively empty. It's almost kind of odd, right? I mean, there's maybe 30 people sitting in these huge buildings, and that's that's some of what you're seeing in small towns. I know there's inc- there, there's fewer and fewer people going into vocational ministry. Seminaries around the country are well down, and they're closing their doors. I know I've worked in Christian ministries programs uh, since the early 2000s in multiple institutions, and the number of majors that are getting into vocational ministry to become pastors, that again, that's way down among the next generation. And so we are starting to see, I think, that maybe the first or maybe second, third inning of a significant decline in religious attendance and even religious possibility in these in these villages. I think there's a huge opportunity for a revitalization in the rural communities because of it. And I think one last quick point on that. There's, I, I see a lot of my urban colleagues uh, doing wonderful work in the communities of these urban centers, but it, it, it sometimes feels like a splash in the bucket. And that doesn't mean in any way mean to demean any of the work because so much of it is absolutely beautiful. But the impact that can be made on an entire village or community in rural America, re- there really seems to be an opportunity there if people are willing to take some steps out in that direction. 
And I also think there's a lot of wisdom right there in those communities and maybe figuring out how to allow, encourage people to become bivocational pastors and yes, then become sure. the pastor of the of the community where they are already planted. Sometimes transplants work, but sometimes I think in rural communities, um, identifying people who who have the gifts but don't have the resources um, to pastor congregations and grow a ministry um, may be a way that uh, that people with resources could look at rural communities and say, that's a place I could invest because I could invest in that person. Yeah, and that's where your idea that you've mentioned about like sort of a farminary, right? A I know, I want a farminary. The bivocational yes. model has always been the model, uh, you know, historically of the Christian faith. And, and I just think that could be a really compel- compelling model. If seminaries could figure out how to equip people in the communities where they currently are through technology, I think you could really do some beautiful revitalization work with these communities. All right. We have a lot of listeners out there. Maybe there's somebody, if we, if we say the word farminary, you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> <laughs> I could get into that. Like that's something I could get behind. All right. Hey, Peter Kapsner, thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. Blessings uh, on your family. Um, and safe trip home. Yeah, thanks so much, Carmen. Happy Thanksgiving. And if I can just say it's been fun to be over here because we really do serve a large God, uh, Carmen. It's amazing to see how he's at work over here on the other side of the pond. Amen. Amen. All right, we'll be right back. So I want to ask you a quick question. What makes the beginning of Christmas for you? So this is this is Thanksgiving. I have a friend who calls this Thanksmas because for her, this really does mark the beginning of Christmas. So she calls it Thanksmas. Um, I read an obituary. I read an obituary um, uh, in the London Guardian that the the guy who has been the director of the King's College at Cambridge. Um, for many, many years has passed away. And so I just want to celebrate um, the way Christmas begins for many of us with song. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.